0: or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za I'll tell you one thing, all of these songs today and the joy of the return of Christ, of the joy of believers being in glory with Him, that's the thing that's been driving me throughout the week and in fact Throughout my whole Christian life, I've been longing for the return of Christ. You guys know that. If you know me, you know that. There's one thing. It's almost my, my other name. You know, longing for Jesus. And today I want to share something of that joy with you. I want to share something of what I've been thinking about. And particularly, you see my picture that I, I produced again this week. This is AI. It wasn't really what I was hoping for, but hey, what can you do? AI doesn't know about heavenly glory, does it? It's not big enough. It doesn't doesn't have big enough scenes. So we're just going to have to settle for this little picture here. And here you can see this massive crowd of people all the way to the left and all the way to the right there. Rejoicing and cheering because finally the great consummation of the universe has come about. Where we have uh, the purpose of God's plan. You remember as God plans, he doesn't just, you know, plan something. He has a purpose behind his plan. And as we, as we look today at, at the, the functions of the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, in the world to come, we're going to see how glorious God's purpose is for all of this ordinariness that we're experiencing today. So I'm finding this very satisfying. So let's begin on the fifth and final part of this short series on motivation from the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's just ask the Lord to help us before we, we start here. Lord, we just thank you for your absolutely breathtaking de- uh, design in this world. Thank you, Lord, for the way in which you've you've built this world in a wise way. That everything that we live, everything we experience seems so ordinary and small. Day in, day out, eating food, um, combing our hair, eating breakfast, uh, putting our heads down on the pillow at night to sleep. Um, being educated, reading a page of text on a book and writing a test or an exam on that. Just the ordinary things that we do. Ordinary conversations, uh, buying things at the shops and selling things. We just think, Lord, of of item after item. Our whole daily lives are made up of ordinary deeds. But, Lord, we thank You that the, the accumulation of these ordinary deeds, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, finally accumulates into something that is more glorious than we can imagine. Thank you, Lord, that you are achieving glory for your people. Glory unspeakable. Something so wonderful, Lord, our minds cannot even conceive of it. And even this AI picture I tried to produce this week, AI just cannot imagine the bigness and the beauty and the glory that you have called your people to. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we think of this wonderful theme in Scripture. Help us, Lord, to, to just stop for a moment and to think. Help us, Lord, as we think about these things, to be lifted up in glory, to be lifted up in worship. As we, as it were, we look straight into heaven and we see our glorious Savior ruling in glory. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, not just to take this doctrine as something ordinary just another thing we know about in theology but i pray lord in the ordinary moments of life that this extraordinary doctrine would drive us and move us and motivate us every day lord we just pray for your blessing on us as we open your word again one more time and we pray these things in jesus lovely name amen thank you man thank you for sitting through four out of five sermons and this is the last one just enjoy it man just enjoy these themes Enjoy being taken up into glory as we see the functions of the persons of the Trinity for one last time. And be motivated by that. If you look at, just a quick recap, I'm just doing this again and again and again so you don't forget this picture. If we look at a recap of the Trinity, remember we have three summary statements of the Trinity. And they're all well pictured in a diagram that we have there on the next slide. And you'll remember that the three summary statements are that God is three persons. There's three persons in the Bible who are called God. And then on top of that, each of those persons who is called God is fully God. And then thirdly, the Bible teaches that there is one God. And those persons in the Bible, they cannot be said, one cannot be said to be the other. So the Father is not God. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. Three distinct persons. And then if we move further forward, we notice, remember that the functions of the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Holy Spirit applies. And that's the general pattern throughout the whole of the Bible, and we're going to see that again as we move on into the world to come. But the first thing I want to point out as we go into the world to come is that when you study the Bible and you try and find the different functions of the persons of the Trinity in the world to come, it's quite difficult to see the the distinct functions of the persons of the Trinity. Clearly, we have the function of the Father in the world to come. Clearly, we have the function of the Son in the world to come. But then, remember, because each of the persons of the Trinity is God, we see a unity in the doctrine of the future that that is very satisfying. That we see the function of the Father beginning to blend the unity with the function of the Son. And then one of the challenges we have in, in the, the doctrine of the future as well is that we, we try and find the function of the Holy Spirit. And you look and you read and you read and you say, where did the Holy Spirit go? Obviously, the Holy Spirit is there, but you don't find the work of the Holy Spirit in the teaching on the doctrine of the future. There we have to look at other biblical texts where we speak of the function of the Holy Spirit and we'll see how this Holy Spirit functions in the future. So I'll point out that don't blink when I'm speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the future because it's very short. But let's have a look at the at the functions of the Trinity in the age to come, in this glorious age to come. So, firstly, the Father. You remember, obviously, the Father has planned. The Father's planned all of these little details all the way from eternity past, forever and ever and ever ago. He planned every loaf of bread. Do you remember I pointed out the little loaf of bread on the picture that I had there? Every loaf of bread, every molecule. Remember, there's not one single rogue molecule in God's universe. God has absolute control over every single detail of His universe. And everything happens as it should because God causes it to happen according to His own plan and according to His own purpose. So in the world to come we see something of the unity of the Father and the Son. The Father plans throughout all history that He's going to create this world and we're going to find huge joy in in the, the whole consummation of God's plan. God intends to bring an end to all of the ruin and misery that we see in this world as we look toward the future. We read that verse often, Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4. Where John writes, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Now, the dwelling of, of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away." Isn't that remarkable man. We're coming into a glorious time where there's no more suffering. I'm I'm hoping that sounds good. For me, I'm longing for that. The first suffering I'm longing to be free of is my own sinful heart. My own sinful desires. My own perversions. My own bias to always do the wrong thing. And I'm sure you're longing for that as well. Imagine, you woke up tomorrow and you were absolutely perfect. (laughs) No more sin. What a joy. On its own, that would be a joy. But God is going to bring an end to all of this misery and sadness and sorrow and crying and pain. And the interesting thing is that we're speaking about God the Father. But if you read other texts in Revelation, for example, Revelation chapter 22 verses 1 and 3. We read that the throne of God is also the throne of the Son. The throne of the Father is the throne of the Lamb. So Revelation 22, 1 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then in verse 3, he says again, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. So it's interesting how everything that the Father planned and the Son accomplished You've got the Son sitting on the throne, but it's as if God is sitting on the throne because the Son accomplished the, the, the plan of the Father. And you can see the unity of the Father and the Son in the world to come. And I think that's beautiful. People often ask, you know, will we see God the Father? And I'm like, you're going to see God the Son. You're going to see the man, Christ Jesus. But God is Spirit. You're not going to see God the Father and you're not going to see God the Spirit. We're going to see God the Son... But God the Son is sitting on the throne of God and of the Lamb. When you see Jesus on the throne, you see God sitting on the throne. Everything, the whole plan, this whole consummation that Christ brings about is what God planned and what God intended to happen. And it was God's purpose. So as we see the Son sitting on the throne, we're seeing God sitting on the throne. We're seeing Him represent the entire Trinity. And I think that's absolutely wonderful, the the throne of God and of the Lamb, the same throne. Then in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, you remember one of those verses in the Bible that I could just never stop thinking about. And this is one of the reasons I find such glory in the person of Christ. You remember Paul said to the Corinthians, For God, God the Father, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine into our hearts, And gave us the light of the knowledge, listen to this, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when you're looking into the face of Christ, sitting on the throne, you're looking into the face of God the Father. At the same time, it's the same glory. You see the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see the glory of the Father in the face of the Son. And I find that absolutely thrilling. There's no confusion you're looking at the same triune God when you're looking at the Son. Everything the Son represents is what the Father planned and the Son accomplished and the Spirit applied. Remember, to make this wonderful, to think of how beautiful this is. Remember Exodus 33. You remember where God was speaking to Moses and Moses is on the mountain and Moses says, Now show me your glory. You know, bold and ambitious question that Moses asks God. And God says, God says, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. But the day is coming for you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus that we're going to look into the face of God as we look into the face of Christ on the throne and we're going to live. And we're going to live forever in huge joy with open faces with no shame. What a moment, man. What a moment to stand face to face with God and not be ashamed. To be open-faced and not have anything to hide forever so that's the father planning and we see how the father is represented in the doctrine of the future he's represented his whole plan that has come to consummation is represented in the lamb in the Son sitting on the throne and being a ruler over everything that god has planned that he would establish and then secondly We notice that the Son, and of course this is going to be the whole massive section in the sermon today, is the Son is going to accomplish the final rescue and glorification of God's people forever and ever. And I just just find it so thrilling that there's a man at the pinnacle of glory, and that man is going to return and is going to take us to be with Him forever and ever in, in perfect beauty and glory. So, what is the first thing the sun is going to do? How is the sun, what is the sun going to accomplish from this moment on? What's the next thing on God's timetable that we're waiting for? This church, in case you're wondering, if you're new here, this church takes a pre millennial view on eschatology. We believe that Christ will take his church away in a premillennial, in a pre tribulational rapture. That's the thing I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for Christ to literally, while I'm standing here, just snatch me away into glory. Just like that. you're like Some people might laugh about that. A lot of people have laughed at me when I've spoken about that. But the Bible teaches that. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 18. 16 to 18, Paul said to the Thessalonians, who were really sad because they were waiting for the return of Christ, and then their people in the church were starting to die one by one, and they were like, oh no, oh no, oh no, Uncle George has missed the rapture. He's missed everything. Now what? And we're getting older, and maybe we'll die as well. And he's like, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Not one single believer is going to miss out on this. Even if you die, you're going to be involved in this all catching up of the church into the presence of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Notice the trumpet call of God. Christ is accomplishing this. But it's the trumpet call of God. It's something that God has planned and ordained. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So all of these people that we are, are grieving, people that we know and who've loved the Lord and who've died, they're gonna be in their graves. And as soon as Christ comes to snatch away his church, though our loved ones are gonna come blasting out of their graves. Sometimes I go to my wife's grave and I stand there and I look at that ground and I think, you know, the day's coming. When this very sand is going to come flying out. And she's going to be raised in perfect glory. To see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face without shame. The dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17 says. After that. We who are still alive. And I don't know what it's going to sound like. Make this big roar. We might even see our loved ones flying up and shining. As they're going toward Christ in the sky. But after that. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up, snatched away, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So as, the, as our loved ones who have died in Christ are resurrected, we're going to be caught up and we're going to join them in the sky together, being glorified on the way. And then the next thing that happens is that all together as this group, as the church, we meet Christ in the air. We see all together, we see Christ in our glorified state. I don't know about you man but that I'm longing for that more than anything in this world. Just that moment man, I hear the trumpet and I realize it's happening. Boom. <laughs> that uh, I'm going to be the happiest guy on the planet man. Nothing else thrills me more. And then he says after us being caught up he said and so we will be with the Lord forever. And no wonder he says in verse 18 therefore encourage one another with these words like he's coming he's coming the savior is coming jesus is coming any moment our savior could burst through the scene and snatch us away there's nothing stopping him at this stage what a wonder man reminds me of jesus when he spoke in parables about somebody living in his house you know if he knew that somebody was coming to rob his house. Like if someone, you knew someone's coming to rob your house at 10 o'clock at night. Of course you're going to take measures to stop that guy from busting into your house. Eh? Of course you're going to stop him. You're not going to just, oh, I better not be at home when this guy comes. Let him just go in and let me leave the door open. You know, so he doesn't have to struggle. Of course you're going to stop him. You're going to get all your buddies. You're going to get the cops. You're going to get all the security guards. And you're going to wait in the house. And you're going to catch the guy when he comes in. right eh? Have him arrested and sent to prison. I don't know if you can imprison someone for intention to rob, but I get my point. You know, if you're sitting there, if you know a thief's going to come, you get yourself ready. But um, you don't know. If you know a thief's going to come, but you don't know what time he's going to come, you should be waiting. You should be like, oh no, he's going to come sometime this at this in this night. You should be ready for him. You should be ready if Christ is going to come. And he could come at any moment. He's gonna snatch his people away in the blink of an eye, and it's all gonna be over. There's no time to stand around and say, Oh no, you know, it's too late. I haven't I didn't think of Jesus in my life. I'm not a, a worshipper of Christ, I'm not truly born again. Maybe I can fix things right now. It's too late. In the flash, in the blink of an eye, it's gone. All of the believers have gone. Those who are driving buses and aeroplanes and cars and everything. It's just too bad for everybody who's in those vehicles because they gone they don't there's no concern about this world anymore. First thing that happens after Christ snatches us into glory as I've said to you before is the bema the judgment throne of Christ. And it's absolutely fascinating again when we read about the judgment seat of Christ because uh, if we read in 2 Corinthians 5:10 Paul says for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I want to just say to you, I want to say again and again and again that if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins have been judged by God on Christ at Calvary and God will never, ever, 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 ever speak about your sins ever again. When He's speaking here about Um, receiving what is due to you for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. That whole context, he's speaking about the fact that this Bema judgment is a time of reward. The only thing that's ever going to be considered in this judgment is rewards. It's like the Bema is is, a, is athletic imagery, remember, where the athletes run around the track, round and round and round, and then you've got the judge who says, you came in first position, you came in second position, you came in third position, here your medals, well done. That's what the Bema judgment is. It's not about bringing up all the losers and saying, okay, you the worst loser, You and here we're going to punish you, send you to a, a labor camp for a week, whatever. There's no no question of sin in the Bema judgment, the judgment throne of Christ. And that's wonderful. Isn't it wonderful to know that as you anticipate the return of Christ, He will never, ever, ever speak of your sin again. It's gone. Absolutely gone. He died for your sin. Why would He bring it up with you ever again? There's no condemnation, says Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is gone forever. And I find that more thrilling than anything else in the world. So that's the Bema judgment seat of Christ where we stand there and He gives us reward upon reward upon reward. And you're just like, Lord, it's too much. And you say, well, I've chosen to give it to you. Just bear it. And the weight of glory for us is going to be so heavy. You're going to have to walk out there with a cartload of rewards that Jesus has given you. You're going to say, it's too much, Lord. I can't carry all this stuff. Yeah, well, just, you know, deal with it. You've got the rest of eternity to carry this stuff out. But then you know it's interesting. So this is the, we're going to stand before Christ. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice 2 Corinthians 5.10. Judgment seat of Christ. But then if we look at Romans 14.10, Paul says, You then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. God's judgment seat and it's exactly the same judgment it's the bema judgment it's the same word it's the same judgment so we're going to stand before god why have you wasted all of that time judging your brother it's pointless christ suffered for that sin and now you've wasted that whole moment you could have been kind and friendly and loving toward that brother and you would have been rewarded but now you lose out on that reward that's his point there but but what i'm trying to say about this is the, is the judgment seat of christ and it's the judgment throne of god the father and son united in their judgment but christ is the one sitting on the throne judging and rewarding his people i find this thrilling man i find it absolutely thrilling that the first thing that's going to happen is christ going to snatch me away i'm going to stand before christ in a glorified form and he's just going to put reward upon reward upon reward not that i've earned according to what i've done but not i cannot earn a reward he's going to judge me according to what i've done but that's i haven't earned it i hope that's clear and the reward is just going to be unbelievably great one thing i want to just point out over here is that we've been speaking about the whole doctrine of the trinity we've looked at an overview we've seen the relationships between father son and spirit We've seen the functions of the persons of the Trinity. We've seen the Father planning. We've seen the Son accomplishing. We've seen the Holy Spirit applying and indwelling His people. But I want to ask you. Knowing what you know about your own life. Knowing the times when you've sat and you've said to yourself, I wonder if I'm even truly saved because I'm so depraved. I've got such a bent, you know, such a a force that's driving me towards sin all the time. I wonder if I'm even a true believer. In fact, I think I might even be an apostate. I might be just claiming that I'm I'm a child of God, but I'm actually just a filthy sinner. Imagine living your life and having those thoughts again and again and struggling and struggling and struggling to do what is right. Day after day, these long moments, sometimes struggling with temptation of sin and you know, speaking harsh words to people, arguing, you know, envying people, being jealous, filled with anger and, and lust and greed. Imagine that day when you stand before Jesus and He knows all of that about you looking into the eyes of christ and he knows all of that about you and he himself is the one saying to you it's okay it doesn't matter i suffered for all of that i suffered for all of that how precious is it going to be for you when you see the christ who accomplished your salvation he knows everything about you and he still says it's okay he still says i suffered for that sin he still says that the judgment of god on your sins is right and just it's okay it does make everything all right when I see Jesus, knowing what I know about myself and the long struggle with sin, I'm going to look at him and say, "Are you sure? Are you sure it's all right?" And he's going to say, "Absolutely, man. Are you sure? I mean, what about what about this?" And he's like, "Hey, I died for that. I suffered. I bled and died for that." And the more the more you can remember, the more you can think about that, you should have a conscience about. Christ is going to be saying, "Yeah, that as well. Yeah, and that. Yeah, and that day. I remember that day." And that yeah i remember that too oh that yeah i remember that i died for that as well you're never going to be able to bring up a sin that's going to shatter god's favor in you and i think that goes for the work of the holy spirit as well you know that when the holy spirit takes up residence in you at the time when you're born again isn't it wonderful that the holy spirit as christ is incarnated into a human body the spirit of god comes and dwells inside of you in a fallen human being he goes the places where you go he sees the things you see he hears the things you hear as I was saying last week he lives in the nitty gritty of your daily life there's nobody in this world who knows you like the Holy Spirit knows you and isn't it thrilling that when God transports you into the direct presence of God where the eyes of God, remember John um, in Revelation chapter 1, when John sees the risen Christ, he says His eyes are like blazing fire. His eyes can drill right through you. Imagine standing in front of a God whose eyes can drill right through you and you know how you've lived and the Holy Spirit has lived with you. There's no way you can escape anything. And the Holy Spirit says, it's okay. He's, he's with me. I mean, how precious is it going to be? When we think of the Father planning my entire life with all of its sin and misery and mess and bringing me into glory. The Son coming into the world to accomplish that glory for me. And the Holy Spirit actually residing in me because I'm so helpless. He drives me like you drive a car. He drives me through this whole world to glory. And the triune God makes it okay that a person like me is in glory with Christ forever and ever. That thrills me man. I can't even tell you how much that thrills me. New, breathtaking appreciation for the Father's plan, the Son's accomplishment, and the Spirit's application. That's what that's what we're heading for. Yeah, one verse in the Bible that I find hard to understand as well. And when I say hard to understand, it's that final one, Romans eight verse twenty nine. You know, God's purpose is that there would be many like His Son. And the fact that He chose me to be like Jesus, I mean, what are the chances in this world? God chooses His people. Throughout the whole Bible, we've got what we call the scandal of particularity. God chose that person. God chose that nation. You know, God chose this day. You know, all of the things that God chooses in our world, there's a scandal if you choose one person and not another. Like, how dare you choose this person and not that one? You know, that's not fair. But the whole Bible teaches this, what we call the scandal of particularity. And God has the right to do that, doesn't He? He has the right to choose one and not choose another. And for God, that's a glorious thing that He chose anybody at all knowing everything I know about me and God chooses me He chooses to set His love on me He chooses to plan me from before the world began He chooses to rescue me through Christ He chooses to put His Spirit in me and bring me to eternal glory that is amazing absolutely amazing that God chose to make me like His Son forever and that's His purpose that's His purpose in Romans 8.29 that there would be many more like Jesus, like His Son as simple as it gets that's god's great plan isn't it he wants a bride for his son therefore he creates a universe to bring this about and i'm a member of that bride i'm a part of the bride of christ god is going to make me like jesus forever and ever and that is wonderful so here we are christ has snatched away his bride into heaven we reunite with all our loved ones who who know the lord jesus christ the savior We stand before the payment judgment of Christ and He just loads reward upon reward upon reward upon His people forever and ever. But while while we are there in heaven's glory, while we are just having a wonderful, wonderful time with our Savior and just basking in His glory, the glow of His glory, at the same time, God... And particularly God the Son, who has the right to do this, because He's been a man. And He is a man. He has the right to pour out the wrath of God on the earth for seven years. Seven years of tribulation. I want to just point out one thing. If you read First Thessalonians 4 and 5, you will notice that there's a little bit of confusion in the text in the way people read it. We have We have the return of Christ in chapter 4. But then in chapter 5, Paul says now about the day of the Lord, I do not need to write to you. And then he speaks about the terrible times, the terrible things that are going to happen in the world that are going to indicate the coming of the day of the Lord. I want to point out the return of Christ is not the same thing as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is what we're speaking about here in the seven year tribulational period. Where God pours out His massive wrath on the earth for seven years. Do you remember the seven seals that the Lamb opens? Remember the Father, God is on the throne. The Lamb comes, He opens the seals. And He functions with full authority as God. He opens the the seals. And then you remember there's those seven trumpets of God's wrath, the seven bowls of God's wrath, three huge torrents of God's wrath poured out on the earth absolutely terrible time like this world has never seen. Revelation 6 to 18, the bulk of the book of Revelation is about the seven-year tribulational period where people are going to cry out in agony day and night where God sends punishment upon punishment upon punishment in this world. Why is God pouring out punishment on the world? Why would He do that? Well, there's two main reasons, aren't there? The first reason is that God is punishing people who have rejected Christ. And when you see the glory of this Christ, you've got to look at Him and say, why would anybody ever want to be an enemy of this Christ? He's glorious. He's wonderful. He's God, a very God. Why would a person reject Him? So God punishes individuals who do that. And there's so much more here. I'm just doing it in a nutshell. But the second reason that God punishes people is to press them to the point where they will repent. Because you know how much difficulty comes into your life before you get on your knees and to say, God, have mercy on me. I think we have a good picture of that. Remember in Genesis chapter uh, 3, where Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They're perfect. They've walked with God. They know God in the garden. And then when they eat the fruit, suddenly they realize they're naked and they hide from God. They dress themselves in leaves. And when God comes and says, what have you done? That is a perfect moment for Adam and Eve to look at God and say, Yes, God, we've sinned. Please forgive us. But instead of saying, instead of just repenting, instead of just saying, Yes, I sinned. It's this fight, fight, fight. It's with the woman, it was the snake. God, it was you that put the woman here, shifting the blame and covering up and hiding and deceiving and manipulating instead of just stopping and saying, God, have mercy on me. Isn't that amazing? how hard our hearts are that we have to be pushed so far to repent. And that's one of the reasons why at the end of this age God brings a seven-year tribulational period on the earth because He's demonstrating how hard the human heart is. Chapter 16 of, of Revelation that I've quoted here so many times, God turns up the temperature of the sun. And He turns up the temperature of the sun so high that people's skin begins to cook. You, there's like bubbles on their skin and they're beginning like ah, screaming out and chewing their tongues because they're in such pain because God is causing them to suffer and instead of just going down on their knees and saying yes God have mercy on us please forgive me they curse God they curse God and they refuse to repent of the evil that they've done so God is putting on display the hardness of the human heart in the seven year tribulational period and that should make us think It should make me think that is how hard my heart is if god had not come and intervened by his spirit in my life and given me new life i would be exactly like that god would be able to put me through all of that agony i still wouldn't repent you're in my hearts are terribly terribly hard man we know that don't we and after the seven year period this is a real jet tour it's a real rush through these things isn't it after that seven-year period where god has poured out his wrath on this world while you and i as believers in the lord jesus christ are rejoicing in the presence of god in heaven a temporary state at the end of that seven-year period the whole of heaven christ and all of his people you and i as believers in the lord jesus we come down with the lord jesus christ and that's when christ comes and he sets his foot on the mount of olives he comes down from heaven's glory in massive power remember i mean Matthew chapter 24 verse 30 when the lord jesus said at that time the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all of the eight nations of the earth will mourn they will see the son of man coming on the clouds with of the sky with power and great glory what a moment man when we see god The glory of God in Christ. As Christ descends from heaven visibly. And all of the nations of the earth who are suffering under the wrath of God. They see Jesus descending into this world with His people around Him. With His church. This numberless crowd of glorified saints. Me and you included. As believers. We see Him coming down. Revelation 19. 11 puts it like this. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns He had a name written on him that no one knows but he himself He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses dressed in fine linen white and clean Verse 15 says, Out of His mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And then He quotes Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on His robe and on His thigh. He has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What a moment, man. So Christ returns from heaven's glory after we have as believers have been there. We received all of our rewards. We glorified Christ comes back to the end to the end of that seven year tribulation period and he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives splits in two from east to west, you know, from the Mediterranean side all the way through to the other side. And the Jews are going to be attacked by their enemies at that time. Massive, massive, massive war brewing against Jerusalem. And the Jews are running out naked with almost nothing, man. They're just running for their lives out of the city. And next thing, they they see the Mount of Olives splitting in half. And they're running in the crevice between the two halves of the mountain. And suddenly they look up and they see Jesus. And they see the one that they've pierced. And for the first time since Jesus Christ was crucified, they look at Him and they mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. And God brings about this wonderful um, this wonderful conversion of the bulk of the Jewish nation in one go. Imagine so many people saved in one move. And from that moment, that's that's the time of the battle of Armageddon, when Christ puts to death all of His enemies, every single person who is not a believer, every single one of Christ's enemies dies in that battle. And I'm telling you, you and I will be there with Christ when He defeats His enemies. Where every single enemy of Christ dies glorious man glorious we see the son accomplishing the gods the father's purpose here as he destroys all of his enemies in the of battle of armageddon he binds satan for a thousand years you see that wonderful picture where one angel comes out of heaven and he's got a, a key in one hand and a chain in the other hand and he grabs satan And he ties him up in a chain and he throws him in a hole. Poof! And closes the lid and says, okay, stay there. For a thousand years, Satan is inside a hole in the ground. And he can't come out. And for a thousand glorious years, Christ reigns over all the earth. This world, this earth that we're living in. The same earth. We think of some of the texts that are so beautiful. Just Revelation 20, the binding of Satan. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having a key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be be set free for a short time. Wonderful. Imagine, Satan gone. Completely, forever, for that thousand years. There's no sign of Satan ever again. Christ establishes this thousand year kingdom of absolute paradise. Where you and I come in after the bat- battle of Armageddon. We come with Christ into this new glorious world where we begin from scratch. Agricultural world. We begin planting crops in beautiful soil. We walk in in paradise gardens that have been glorified where the earth itself has been liberated from its bondage to decay think of Revelation 20 verses 1 to 5 he speaks about this thousand year period where he says Satan is locked we just read that a moment ago for a thousand years he's going to be locked for a thousand years in verse 3 that paradise In Isaiah 11 verse 6 to 9, and we can read it in in a number of other places, but Isaiah 11 verse 6 to 9 is the text that we all know so well. Where Isaiah says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Imagine a little child leading a lion. And the lion just says, yes sir. Verse 7 says, the cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. That's going to be weird, man, seeing lions grazing in the field. But safe, man. You can walk up to a lion in that kingdom. It's so safe. Verse 8 says, "The the infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child would put his hand into the viper's nest. I mean in Africa snakes are scary man. Imagine your children playing with snakes and no one's afraid. It's like, ah it's fun. Oh yeah, they're playing with a snake. Having you know, funny videos of your kids playing with snakes. Verse 9 says, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the Lord I mean, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Glory wherever you look. Beauty. Glory. Everything speaking about the beauty and the glory of God Himself. Another beautiful thing about that kingdom is that Christ is going to rule over that entire kingdom. One ruler over the entire earth. Christ Himself. Revelation 20 verse 4. Again, the same same text we read just now that Christ is going to reign over this earth we long for a political leader who can just bring peace and safety don't we peace safety and prosperity well that leader is coming and his name is Jesus another glorious thing about this Christ as he reigns well just read Luke 1 I mean that that text Luke 1 was one of the texts I preached on recently we said, And He will be great. This is Jesus. And He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. You have the Son of God ruling over all of the earth. And His kingdom is never going to end. Have we seen that happen in our world? No. It hasn't happened yet. But it is going to happen. The next thing that is glorious is that Christ as he rules over all the earth he's going to set his people in positions of authority as rulers over this entire world i mean most of us none of us are very powerful people in the world none of us know what it's like to rule over a country you know or even some small thing but i'm telling you as a believer in the lord jesus christ you're going to reign with christ you're going to be a dignified ruler in the world to come christ is going to set you up in a position of authority where no one will dare to insult you no one will dare to respect you because you're going to rule over this entire earth under christ man eh? it brings such relief to us as we suffer in this world rome revelation 5:10 says you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth that's the Lord's people man absolutely beautiful and glorious I long for this I long for this change I long for this glorious transformation of all things I long for the end of evil I long for it man so that's the Sun accomplishing and if we look at the Spirit, the role of the Spirit, what is the Spirit do? I don't know how many of you have seen the Spirit's role in all of these texts we've read, but the Spirit doesn't appear by name, does he? But if you read John 14, verse 16, this is one of the most encouraging verses about the work of the Holy Spirit. When, when Jesus, remember in the upper room with His disciples, promises that He's going to send the Holy Spirit to them, He says, I will ask the Father... And He will give you another counselor. You remember I said another of the same kind. The Greek specifies that another counselor, like me, like Jesus, but He's another one. He's the same. He's God, but He's not Jesus. He's not God the Son. He's God the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? Beautiful theology is just in that one, in that one text. I will give you another counselor to be with you. How long? Forever. So the Spirit of God who takes up residence in you today and who knows you today and motivates you today is the same Spirit who is going to be in you as you are glorified and is going to play a part in your glorification. He's going to make you beautiful. He's going to be in you as you're receiving your rewards and your glorification from Christ. He's going to be in you through those seven years you spend in glory while while the sun is pouring out the wrath of God on earth. He's going to be in you as you descend with Christ onto this earth and the Mount of Olives splits in half. He's going to be in you as you watch the battle of Armageddon, the, God's, uh, the enemies of God melting away in front of your eyes. He's going to be in you as you enter into the millennial kingdom for a thousand years, as you rule over the nations. On that world, the Holy Spirit is going to be in you forever and ever and ever and ever. Praise God that the Spirit of God is never going to depart from His people. Um, if you feel as weak as I do trying to get through this world, you can say, thank you God, that God is going to reside in me forever. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely wonderful. Of course, the other texts that I've pointed out there, you know, Ephesians 1, 13 and fourteen, Ephesians four, thirty, you can go look at those and see what they teach about the Holy Spirit. But it's the same it's the same thing. The Holy Spirit is is the seal guaranteeing our inheritance. So if he's the down payment, if he's the first fruits, obviously it's it's a it's an indication of what's to come. So that's the, the work, the function of the third person of the, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, as we enter into glory. But maybe I can just finish off with this one glorious thought. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44, you know, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians, the whole chapter of chapter 15 is a glorious chapter about the resurrection. And Paul there compares you and I living in this world to seeds, and when these seeds are planted, they give rise to a whole plant, like a whole tree. So what we are now, we don't look, you know, we're just like little seeds. And and in glorification, God is going to make us into something that is so glorious, we can't even imagine what He's saying. But in verses um, 42 to 44, He describes something of that for us, so that we can just understand it a little bit. And the first thing is that the perishable becomes imperishable. He says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead, in verse 42. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. I mean you guys know what it's like to have a potato in your kitchen maybe it's like under a, a bag or somewhere like in a cupboard and eventually you walk in around and you're sniffing in your kitchen You, what's that smell and you know potatoes can stink man you buy a bag of potatoes and there's one rotten one in the bottom of the bag somewhere and it just stinks man you, you don't know what's going on but the, your kitchen stinks man And eventually you find that potato and you get it out and it smells on your fingers and everything. You just can't get rid of the stink. Because it's perishable. It's wasting away. And isn't it wonderful that even as we look at our own bodies and we see ourselves getting older and older. We see ourselves struggling with disease, with injuries, with all kinds of pains. And the older you get the more pains you have. With weakness It's things you want to do but you just can't because you're weak. Driving down the road one day in Bronco Sprite, I see these three cops and they're a little bit overweight, running along the side of the road after a criminal. And eventually they just stop, they're like, whew, it's too much. So as I come past, I stop my car, open the door, get in, let's go. And they all jump in the car and they're like, you know, puffing and we chase the criminal in the car. And then just at the right point, you know, where the criminal went around the bend, opened the door and they, they went and ran after him again, they'd recovered. They didn't catch him. He jumped over walls and everything and he was gone. But imagine not being weak like that. Imagine not running out of energy. Imagine being a person who who's able to just to go on and on doing the things that God wants you to do and you always feel good about it. Not getting tired. We think of... How we experience poor health and even deformity in this world. All of that gone forever. Imagine being perfectly mature as a man or woman forever and ever and ever. Nothing wrong. Absolutely perfect. I mean, in, in these days, people say it as an insult. He thinks he's perfect. But in that day, when someone says, are you perfect? I'll say, yes, I'm perfect. <laughs> There'll be nothing wrong. Imagine. So the imperishable, that which is wasting away and melting and dying and getting older and getting wrinkled and saggy and and gray, gone forever. And the second thing Paul points out in this text is uh, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. So your body is going to become gloriously beautiful, not only renewed with power, but it's going to look beautiful. The body that you sinned in, the body that you have shame about, is going to be a body that you can stand in with open face and you can look straight into the face of God and not feel ashamed. You're going to be glorious. You're going to look at other loved ones and they're going to be glorious. No longer stained by sin, but closed in clean brightness. I love this text that is, you know, two texts in the Bible that speak about this. Remember Daniel 12, 3. The Lord says to Daniel, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. They're just shining like like the heavenly bodies forever. Matthew 13, Jesus spoke about this as well. He said, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the father. He who has ears, let him hear. You and I are going to shine, it doesn't matter how messed up we look now. My grandfather, I was just thinking about him this week. He was a big, big bodied man and he went through World War II and he fought in the trenches against the Germans in Egypt. Stayed away from home for a long time, man. He was a real manly kind of man. But when my grandfather got cancer, I remember seeing this big man waste away, get smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually when he died, he was 30 kilograms. And I remember when the day he died, when they came to take away his body. I was me. I was able to pick my whole grandfather up in my arms and put him on the stretcher. I mean, that was that's sad, man. That's really sad. Seeing a, a big, strong, manly kind of man. A man with character and strength. Wasting away like that and eventually dying 30 kilograms. That's not gonna happen, man. That little that little body that he died in is glorious now, man. When I see my grandfather again, he's gonna be shining with the glory of God. We're gonna be glorious as Christ himself is glorious. Remember what John says in one John chapter three verse two Dear friends, now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but when, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Imagine looking at each other, and we look like Jesus, glorious man, shining with glory. Every moment of sadness gone forever. And the third thing John writes, uh, Paul writes about in that text is that it is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power in weakness raised in power you will never again be lacking in power to do everything god desires you to do god is going to make you so powerful he's going to have he's going to give you sufficient power to enthusiastically accomplish everything he requires to, you to do but obviously he's not going to make you powerful as god is powerful we are never going to be omnipotent we're never going to be all powerful but god is going to give you as much power as it takes for you to do everything in your capacity to glorify God forever never running out of energy and then the fifth thing he points out is that the spiritual body become I mean the physical body the the flesh the body of flesh uh, verse 44 it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body that doesn't mean that it's not flesh and bones anymore that's that word in the Greek is never used as something as Um, Immaterial as opposed to material It's speaking about a physical body That's able to relate with spiritual realities So I will be able to see Spiritual realities with my eyes Where now I can't see them I'll be able to interact with spiritual realities So a spiritual body Is not immaterial But it's a body that is able to interact With spiritual realities like God And angelic beings There's a lot of mystery surrounding this whole thing But the point is that it's glorious so after after that glorious thousand year reign what happens next believe it or not believe it or not and this is always complicated but what happens is as believers enter into that realm you've got saints who are glorified and you've got saints who are not yet glorified saints who are saved during the tribulation period those saints who are not yet glorified, they are getting married and they're having kids and you've got nation after nation developing this world. Believers are not going to marry and be given in marriage according to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to be reigning over the earth. But the but those who are saved who enter into the millennial kingdom and you know, are having children, a lot of those children are going to grow up and not be saved. So you're going to have a perfect kingdom reigning over this whole world. But there are going to be a lot of people who live under Christian rule. under Christ's rule who end up not being saved by the end of this thousand year period. And it is those people, remember what I was saying about the tribulation, it is those people at the end of that thousand years when Satan is finally released again, who see Satan released and they rise up against Christ, they rise up against God, they rise up against believers this massive global war like Armageddon And Christ defeats those people with the breath of His mouth. One breath, poof, and they're all dead. His enemies are down. What happens after that? We have another resurrection where Christ raises all of these, every single unbeliever who's ever lived. He raises them from the dead so they can stand before the great white judgment throne of God. Christ is sitting on the throne. It is the judgment of God. You and I as believers are standing with God. Every single person who's ever stolen from you, every person who's ever done something illegal in the traffic, every person who's ever wronged you in any way, they're going to stand before God. You're going to be there as well. And you're going to be saying, Yes, Lord, your judgment is right. I remember this guy, and this guy remembers me. We know each other. Ah, I remember you. When somebody does something to me in the world, I remember that. You think you've got away with it, but this is all coming to a head. I'm going to stand with Christ. And I'm going to see you again. If you're, not, if you're not saved before that time, there's absolute dread for you, man. When you're judged by God at the great white judgment throne. After this great white judgment throne for the first time, hell is populated with Satan and his demons. And the false prophets in Revelation who taught against Christ. Every unbeliever is thrown into hell for the first time. Hell is still empty at this stage. Nobody's there yet. And after that, we see the great and glorious heavenly Jerusalem. The dwelling of God descending to become one with the dwelling of man. And the mystery in this is so great, we just cannot ever comprehend the greatness of it. Just a few words of application. Obviously, man, obviously, if we have a triune God who is planned and who is accomplishing and applying all of these things. We've got to say, God, this is an absolutely brilliant plan. From beginning to end, from eternity before this world began until eternity after this world ends. Thank you, God, for a glorious, glorious plan. Thank you for going to all of the costs in Jesus to purchase my soul for God. Thank you, God, for putting the Holy Spirit in me to assure that I'm never going to be lost forever and ever and ever. I cannot fail. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Let's thank God for that. Let's worship God for that. That's something we can do during the week. The second thing is to live, live in hope of the resurrection. Man, every day live in hope of the resurrection. In fact, Romans 8, verse 24, he's speaking about the resurrection, the glorification of your bodies, and the glorification of this whole earth. And he says, In this hope you were saved. When I'm saved, it is in the hope that I'm going to be glorified in this way. That's the final point, that's the final point. I'm living toward that resurrection. Living toward that glorification. I'm longing for that. My whole life is about that moment when I see Jesus and nothing else matters. Live in hope of resurrection glory. And there's two things you can do. Two things that can motivate you to do that. One is your pain. Pain can motivate you to live in the hope of resurrection glory because as you live in this world and you suffer in weakness just one experience of weakness is enough for you to say god i'm longing for resurrection and we have weakness all the time don't we one experience where you have lack of resources i can't pay for this i don't have enough sugar for this recipe any any lack of weakness your petrol tank's empty god thank you that this lack of resources is coming to an end forever for me. When you struggle with endurance, just climbing out of bed again on another day, live in hope, this pain must drive me to say thank you God, that this is like I've said to you guys so many times, one more Sunday, closer to glory. Thank you that I don't have to get out of bed this day again, it's gone forever. When you're struggling to resist sin, Temptation is hitting you hard, man. And if you're failing, say, God, thank you that resurrection's glory, resurrection glory is coming and this is going to be gone forever. It's just now that I'm suffering with sin. When you're struggling to develop good Christian character, and it's so hard, man. It's so hard to love each other and to be humble and patient and gracious and soft and gentle with other people. You can say, God, thank you that even though I'm struggling with character now, resurrection glory is coming and I'm going to be made perfect. The pain of aging, let that help you to live in the hope of resurrection glory. Facing death, your own death or somebody else's death, help that to use that. Use the power, the emotional power of that to drive you to live in the hope of resurrection glory. When you're facing disease or criminal assault, all of these pains, use the pain to drive you to say How long, O Lord? How long? Like those saints under the altar in Revelation 6. And the second thing you can do that will motivate you to live in resurrection glory is to honestly look at the things that we've been studying today. Look at Jesus more and more and more. Study these texts. Long for Christ. Just study the, the return of Christ. Study the day of the Lord. Study the judgment seat of Christ. Study the eternal state. Study the wedding supper of the Lamb. Study the tribulation. Study Armageddon. Study the millennial kingdom. Study the final rebellion. Study the great white judgment throne of God. Study the eternal state. Study your glorification and what it will be like. Just fill your mind with this. Just think about it all the time. You can be motivated by it. Find Deliberately find joy in it. Study a text and say, I will find joy in this text. God help me. And God will help you that's what God loves to do these are so big as the text on the screen says that the spirits and the bride say come keep coming notice who's speaking spirit of God and who the bride us the church we say come 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 let him who hears say come Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. In conclusion, the mystery and the majesty of the Trinity, the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, unfold a profound narrative of salvation and glory intricately woven from eternity to eternity. The Father's grand design, the Son's magnificent accomplishment the Spirit's enduring application of the depths of this divine plan, we find uh, application, sorry I'm reading it wrong, you're reading it right, coverage in a cosmic tapestry of divine love and justice. As we delve into the depths of this divine plan, we find ourselves awestruck by the promised transformation of our frail earthly existence into a state of eternal spiritual glory. This hope Grounded in the resurrection and the ultimate revelation of God's kingdom, calls us to a life of worship, anticipation, and deep reflection on the profound truth of scripture. Let us embrace this journey with faith and joy, anticipating the fulfillment of God's glorious promise, where pain, sin, and death are vanquished, and we, in perfect unity with a triune God, experience the fullness of His presence and love evermore lord thank you thank you that we do know the triune god that we know the god who planned all of this every single molecule from before the world began and the plan will be successful for all eternity thank you lord that we do know the son the son who came into this world as a man and accomplished our lives accomplished our salvation accomplished our redemption accomplished our atonement accomplished our resurrection, accomplished our glorification, accomplished our eternal reign with Christ for us and as us. Lord, thank you that we do know the Spirit of God who lives in us, in every one of us who know you as Lord and Savior by your grace. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in hope as we part company from here. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who absolutely long for the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else. Please, Lord, we pray that this truth, You would use it in our hearts by Your Spirit to make a difference in our lives. Help us, Lord, to see pain and suffering in a different way and help us, Lord, to study these texts in such a a way that they become real to us, that they do honestly move us and change us and challenge us every day. Lord, we pray that You would make us joyful and shining examples of those who truly have been redeemed by Christ, by this glorious God. And Lord, ultimately, we pray that you would come even today. We long for your eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name.